I love that last song. Uh, it's one of my current favorites. And while it's still fresh in your mind, I want to read a couple of the lyrics. We sang, my worth is not in what I own, not in the strength of flesh and bone. My worth is not in skill or name, in win or lose, in pride or shame. I will not boast in wealth or might or human wisdom's fleeting light. I rejoice in my Redeemer, greatest treasure, wellspring of my soul. I will trust in him, no other. My soul is satisfied in him alone. As we turn our attention to God's word this morning, we are going to consider the truth that undergirds those affirmations and denials. Those, those items in that song, in that lyric that we just sang corporately together, affirming what we would not boast in, and, uh, I'm sorry, denying that we would boast in ourselves, and affirming that we would boast in Christ. Human beings are hardwired for praise, for worship, for exaltation. We naturally ascribe glory and worth to what we value. All men and women worship, all men and women praise, all boast, all ascribe glory. It's the object of that praise, the object of that glorying and the worth that we find. It's, it's the object of that that differentiates our boasting, that differentiates what we praise. Since the fall of man into sin, the historical events that occurred as recorded for us in Genesis 3, every man and woman except the Lord Jesus, has been born with a heart that craves self-exaltation and autonomy. The heart of fallen man is a heart predisposed to self-praise, self-honor, and those things reflect self-confidence and self-trust. And of late, for seemingly limitless Examples of this, we need to look no further than the current political climate in our society. The relentless commercials and speeches that are all aimed at telling us why so-and-so is worthy of our confidence, is worthy of our praise. And in nearly every case, the primary reason given for securing our confidence is supposedly so-and-so's confidence that they actually have in themselves. So every four years, the election cycle brings this unceasing boasting and self-exaltation to the fore of each day's news. And it all has such a stale feel to it, doesn't it? it uh, it's just stale. It's the same old. And it's not because we agree or disagree with a particular individual, but it's because we're constantly presented over and over again with man's wisdom, man's strength, man's abilities, Man's wealth, and those are all given as the solutions to what ails humanity. The solutions that we're presented with now are no different from the solutions offered for thousands of years. They just have more sophisticated language. But at the core, they remain the same. 
They're founded upon the abilities and resources of men and women with no attention or reverence offered to Almighty God. And yet it's far too easy, especially against the backdrop of this current political scene, to sit back and decry the folly of our culture and to point out the endless self-aggrandizing that reveals the defective heart condition that runs and operates our world while not recognizing our own fleshly boasts. The Lord's people are not immune. We're not immune to self-trust, to self-exaltation, to self-praise. Listen to the warning that Moses gave to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 8 as they prepared to finally enter the promised land. Moses warned them, when you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes which I am commanding you today. Otherwise, when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. He led you through the great and terrible wilderness with with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. He brought water for you out of the rock of flint. In the wilderness, he fed you manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and that he might test you to do good for you in the end. Now listen to this. Otherwise, you may say in your heart, my power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. Spiritual amnesia that would lead to self-exaltation. In a similar fashion, Paul corrected the boastful Corinthians when he asked them rhetorically, for who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Both the lost world and the Lord's people need to hear his call to examine the foundations of our boasting and ultimately to turn toward the only secure foundation that anyone has for exaltation and confidence, and that is the Lord himself. In the 6th and 7th century B.C., the prophet Jeremiah was called to preach to a people who had turned away from God. They had turned toward self, and they were facing imminent judgment for their apostasy. Recall in your Bible history that after Solomon, the kingdom was divided. There was the northern kingdom, which was known as Israel, and the southern kingdom of Judah. Israel had been taken into captivity by the Assyrians in 722 B.C., and now Jeremiah was preaching to the people of Judah. He was warning them of the imminent threat of judgment and calling them to return to their God, to return to the Lord. Now, eventually, over the course of a few campaigns, Judah would be taken into captivity by Babylon. They didn't listen to the message. They didn't turn. So in 586, ultimately, they are taken into captivity. Our focus this morning in Jeremiah's message will be on the famous verses 23 and 24 of Jeremiah chapter 9. We'll read those together in just a moment. 
As you turn there, or if you're already there, I, I want you to have a sense of the context that when you read these famous verses, the force that was intended by the prophet is not dulled. Jeremiah was called to preach to a people that the Lord called foolish and senseless. He said they have eyes but do not see, they have ears but do not hear, they do not fear the Lord, they did not tremble in his presence, they had turned away in their iniquities. Chapters 7 and through 10 contain Jeremiah's message at the temple gate. He is there preaching to the people of Judah, confronting their hypocrisy, confronting their iniquity in the very place they most cherished as a sign that they would be protected. They saw the temple, and that was sort of the epitome of their ultimate confidence in self. They were going there in the midst of their iniquity and, and going through the rote motions of what they thought would please God and looking at the temple and saying, the temple, the temple, the temple, as long as it's here, we're safe over and against the message that Jeremiah was proclaiming was that they needed to turn their hearts back to God. They needed to repent. And so in verse four of chapter seven, you see that empty refrain that they had, and that is evidence of their vain self-confidence. They were looking at a structure rather than their heart. They were not obeying God, Jeremiah tells us. They were walking in accordance with their own counsels, he says, and in the stubbornness of their own hearts. Listen to just two samples of Jeremiah's sermon at the temple gate. Chapter eight, verses eight and nine. How can you say we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us? But behold, the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie. The wise men are put to shame. They are dismayed and caught. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. Chapter 9, verses 12 and 13. Who is the wise man that may understand this? And who is he to whom the mouth of the Lord has spoken that he may declare it? Why is the land ruined, laid waste like a desert so that no one passes through? The Lord said, because they have forsaken my law, which I set before them, and have not obeyed my voice, nor walked according to it. This is the backdrop to the proverbial words that we have in verses 23 and 24 of Jeremiah 9. These famous verses that we know well were delivered to an insolent, self-confident people who should have known better. Please follow along as I read Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24. Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Remember, prophecy is not so much foretelling as it is forth-telling. Jeremiah was a preacher. And through this prophetic declaration in verses 23 and 24, the Lord is directing his people. He's directing the hearts of men and women who hear this and their response 
to two contrasted foundations of exaltation. The preaching of the prophets was intended to provide a burden for holy living. This was done primarily through preaching that indicted sin, pronounced judgment, and then reminded the people of the promise of future blessing for the repentant. So these words that we hear and know are, are Jeremiah's call to the hearers. They're called to action. They're called to consider, evaluate. And our hearts, even like the people of Judah, that we're called to respond to this teaching, to this word from the prophet. And we could sum up the two responses this way. We're to turn away from a shaky foundation for exaltation and turn toward a secure foundation. To use language of Paul in the New Testament, we're to put away confidence in the abilities of men and to put on confidence in a relationship with the Lord. The details of these verses matter, and the language is plain. And so even as we read this, you may have in your mind all kinds of applications and implications that are springing out to uh, prevent boasting, to, to confront your, your propensity for bragging. And that's good, but we don't want to limit these verses to a, a proverb that are only decided to make us think twice before we brag to our buddy about something that we've done that's better than them. They're worldview verses. These are worldview verses. There's two worldviews being contrasted in verses 23 and 24. There is the self-focused worldview and the God-focused worldview. And those worldviews ultimately reveal two heart conditions. It's the condition that all men and women fall into, either a heart that's self-satisfied and self-secured that ultimately has, is not dependent on the Lord, or the heart that is dependent and subservient to the Lord. Ultimately, the people of Judah's response to Jeremiah's preaching in these verses to where they would find their glory, what they would ultimately exult in, and by extension, our response to these verses they, they reveal whether our heart is right with God. It's that serious. The main action in our passage concerns boasting. And if you're like me, when you think of boasting, you think of bragging. Somebody wanting somebody else to know how much more stupendous, how much more terrific they are in a particular area than the person they're talking to. And we're all familiar with that. We all have experience with that. We've all probably participated in that in some way, shape, or form. But bragging is not the, the full extent of boasting. The boastfulness that is referred to in our text can manifest itself in simple bragging and arrogant talk. But the boasting terminology that's used here is, is not actually negative or positive in and of itself. It depends on where it's directed. Boasting is language of praise. It's language of exaltation. It's language of ascribing glory to something. It's when praise is directed at self that it becomes negative, that we have the negative connotation of boasting. And that's why the Lord can say, boast, that he understands and knows me. The idea there isn't that we're hanging out with a group of people and somebody's bragging about some skill, I'm a better basketball player than you, and you say, oh yeah, well, that's fine, you're a better basketball player. I, I know the Lord. How about that? It's not, there's not this arrogant tone when he says boast in the Lord. It's worship. It's praise. The idea is turn away 
from the praise and glory that you're ascribing to self and turn toward praise for God. We praise and exult in what we value. And that involves where we place our confidence. And that underlying theme of confidence is in these verses. Again, think of the context. There's imminent judgment coming for these people. And Jeremiah is telling them, do not have confidence in yourself. Don't boast as one who's confident in self. Boast in the Lord. So in verse 23, we are called to turn away from a shaky foundation for exaltation. Turn away from a self-satisfied heart, and this happens by being informed of what we should not boast in. So Jeremiah calls these people, turn away. Judgment's coming, turn away from mere human ability and human resource. Three different categories of able individual are given to us in verse 23. You have the wise man, the mighty man, and the rich man. And each is told not to boast in what would amount to his greatest human asset. Not to boast in any area where these individuals may find themselves to be resourceful. They may see that as security. Each of these categories would be an area where those who possess whatever the characteristic is, they would be tempted to place their confidence and their trust in there and ultimately to praise themselves, being self-satisfied. One who is wise is skilled and able at life. That's what's intended here. We say, well, that's interesting. He says not to, not to boast in wisdom. We have in, entire books, wisdom books. It's, it's not the issue. The characteristics themselves is not the issue. It's, it's self-praise. And here, wise and wisdom and being a wise man or wise woman is skilled and able at life. It could refer to even technical abilities, fitness for a particular task, somebody who's very competent in a particular area. The wise man in verse 23 would be one who is competent in all kinds of areas of life that would benefit themselves and others. You have the strong man. This is somebody who is superior, mighty, valiant. A manly man is the idea. It was often used to refer to military might, military prowess. Think of David's mighty men in the Old Testament. It can also refer to power, power that is exercised over others, such as the, the mighty rule of a king. Then you have the rich man, and this is exactly what it sounds like, an individual of means, one who possesses riches, and is without material want. So Jeremiah preaches, identifies these three categories. The issue is not the characteristics that are singled out. None of these things is inherently wicked in and of itself. Wisdom is to be sought after diligently and valued. Strength is a gift from the Lord to be utilized in his service for his glory. Wealth is a blessing, a gracious gift from a generous God. The problem is not the gifts themselves in verse 23. The problem is the heart of those who possess these abilities. The problem is the heart of those who have these resources. And the Lord is emphasizing those individuals that humanly speaking may have something to boast in. He's telling them to absolutely abandon, turn away, forsake it in terms of confidence and self-trust. 
Taken together, these, these characteristics, the three individuals in verse 23 would be representative of man's, mankind's propensity to boast in self. That's what's at issue here. It's not limited. If you're poor, unwise, unskilled, and weak, you don't get off the hook because verse 23 doesn't include you. It's a, it's a picture, a, an understanding, a, a painting of somebody that is, uh, is, would be tempted to boast, which ultimately identifies all mankind because of the propensity to boast in self, to rob God of his glory, to rob God of those things that we should praise him for, describe all that glory to ourselves. And this was the heartbeat of those people here in the temple that were hearing Jeremiah's words as they awaited judgment. Listen to a description of what awaited them from Jeremiah chapter nine. This really brings the, the severity of Jeremiah's words to our mind. Again, it's not, it's not simple bragging that he's after, it's more. It's the heart issue that would lead somebody to stand before God and boast in themselves as utterly, utterly self-satisfied, self-confident. Jeremiah says just prior to our passage, I will scatter them among the nations whom neither they nor their fathers have known and I will send the sword after them until I have annihilated them. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider and call for the mourning women that they may come and send for the wailing women that they may come. Let them make haste and take up a wailing for us that our eyes may shed tears and our eyelids flow with water. For a voice of wailing is heard from Zion. How are we ruined? We are put to great shame for we have left the land because they have cast down our dwellings. Now hear the word of the Lord, O you women, and let your ear receive the word of his mouth. Teach your daughters wailing and everyone her neighbor a dirge. For death has come up through our windows. It has entered our palaces to cut off the children from the streets, the young men from the town squares. Speak, thus says the Lord, the corpses of men will fall like dung on the open field and like the sheaf after the reaper, but no one will gather them. After reading this and then verses 23 and 24, we may rightly ask, what good, what good would skill, might, wisdom, understanding do in the face of the mighty Babylonians for the people of Judah? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. In what would a conquered people have left to boast in? That's the intention of Jeremiah's words. More pertinent for our times. What security will ability, influence, prestige, or material wealth provide when one stands before the Lord Jesus Christ at the judgment? An individual that is completely self-satisfied, self-exalting, self-confident, ultimately reveals a heart that is opposed to God. And the words in our text indicate that a, a man or a woman who would ultimately turn all their attention toward the shaky foundation of human ability is a man or a woman who doesn't know God. All boasting rooted in self-sufficiency is reduced to nothing. 
by Jeremiah's words in verse 23. Nothing. And then in verse 24, thankfully, he turns our attention to the only grounds for legitimate boasting. Verse 24, but let him who boasts, boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. The second response called for by the prophet is a turning toward God, a turning toward the secure foundation for boasting, a, turn, a putting on of confidence in a relationship with God, in a relationship with the Lord. Verse 24 shows that we can, uh, there's a proper realm for boasting. It says, you, you want to boast in something, boast in this. It's a, it's a redirection of our natural inclination to boast in self. Redeemed men and women, those who know the Lord, are called to boast in their Redeemer. That's the idea. Boasting, praise, exaltation, when it's ascribed to God, is, is a worthwhile endeavor. It's why we're here. It's why we're on earth, for the glory of God. And the content of this boast is knowledge and understanding of the Lord. We have synonyms here, understanding. That involves comprehension and insight. It, it doesn't necessarily mean we comprehend all that God is. Of course, he's infinite and we're finite. We can't do that. But it, it does indicate that we, we live in a way that shows we've been given and provided insight into the character of God. One who understands the Lord lives in light of who he is, lives in light of what he expects and gives consideration to the Lord's works and then walks after him and seeks after him accordingly. A man or woman of, of understanding as it comes to the knowledge of the Lord is one who, who lives in a way that demonstrates they know God. Knowing, not simply intellectual knowledge. It always includes the intellect, right? But it's not only that in this text. We know that contextually. The people of Judah who were hearing Jeremiah's message knew who the Lord was. This was his people, his chosen people, that he had specifically revealed himself to out of all the nations of earth. They knew of the Lord. They certainly were not philosophical atheists. But their, the pattern of their lives, as evidenced by Jeremiah's preaching, the indictment of sin, and the forthcoming judgment gave evidence to the fact that did they really know the Lord? No, they didn't. And as a result, they're described by God himself as those who don't know. God describes his very people, this people that he had chosen as those who do not know. Chapter nine, verse three, they bend their tongue like their bow. Lies and not truth prevail in the land for they proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me, declares the Lord. Chapter nine, verse six. Your dwelling is in the midst of deceit. Through deceit they refuse to know me, declares the Lord. That's a picture of those who ultimately find all security in self. 
They knew of God. They were acquainted with God. They had heard the law of the Lord, and they perverted it, turned their hearts to themselves, went after their own way, after their own counsels. God says, you don't know me. And it's in contrast to that self-sufficient, presumptuous boasting that the Lord says, focus on me, boast in me, place your confidence in the fact that you have security in me. The godly are to glory in the fact that they know and understand Almighty God. D.A. Carson writes this, there is nothing in the universe more important to human beings than to know the Lord. He is God, not we. He is the creator, not we. He exercises providential rule, not we. He is the self-existent, and we are derived and dependent. He inhabits eternity. We are restricted to our very small segment of time. He is utterly holy and glorious. We are massively contaminated by dirt and stand under his judgment. But we may know him. That is the only thing truly worth boasting about. And then he asks this question. Will you doubt this point 200 or 2 billion years from now? I love, I love that question. Will you doubt this point? Will you doubt that the ultimate the ultimate aim of all boasting should be the Lord, that there's nothing more important in life, in earth, than knowing the Lord. He asks, in eternity, for 200 billion years, will you doubt that? Those who are in the presence of the Lord for all eternity will not regret one bit of self-esteem that's laid aside in this earth. Not one bit of self-confidence that's laid aside in order to glory in the Lord Jesus. The phrase boast of this that then leads us to the Lord's claim that, that he understands and knows me that, that I am the Lord can sound a bit redundant to our non-ancient Near East ears, but it's strategic. Say, why would God say that he knows me and then repeat, I am the Lord? And it's because he's reminding his people of his revealed identity. This is that Old Testament Hebrew word for God that, that we encounter often that he is Yahweh, that's the idea. He's reminding his people, I am the Lord who revealed myself to you. I am the Lord your God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who had revealed himself to his people. The people of Judah had adopted synchronistic worship. They had adopted the gods, uh, the pagan gods around them. God was not one of many gods, it was he was the only God, the Lord, their God, the God who had specifically revealed himself to them. And that's what's brought to mind when he says this. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. And following that weighty reminder, he then sets forth a picture of his character. And the focus is on his works and his desires. It says the Lord, the Lord is one who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. And then it's these things he delights in. Judah was not being called to place their confidence and find their satisfaction in a wicked, harsh, detached deity. This people were caught up in such abomination that they were even sacrificing their own children to the Baals. 
And here the Lord says, this is, what, this is who I am. This is who you should boast in, and this is what I'm like. This is what I delight in. Contrary to the pagan gods and contrary to the pagan behavior of the people, he calls for a heart that is seeking knowledge and understanding of him. And that knowledge and understanding is to be in light of his gracious and upright acts on the earth. That's what he's highlighting. And it, it should blow us away that in a text like this that the Lord himself chooses what he's going to emphasize about his character. And the thing that he says right off the bat is his gracious and merciful dealings with men and women. That's what God says we're to boast in. That's what he says, this is what I want you to know and understand about me. This is what you can glory in. And it's his gracious and merciful dealings with the likes of us. We've seen that throughout Romans. The, of course, God is a God of wrath and he's a God of judgment and punishment. He highlights and emphasizes his grace and mercy shown to undeserving sinners. And that's really brought to the fore when you consider those words we read prior to verse 23, what the people were caught up in and the judgment that awaited them. And he says, I'm a God of loving kindness. The word translated loving kindness in the, the New American Standard or steadfast love in your English Standard Version or if you have the King James or New King James, you'll see multiple words, goodness, mercy. It, it's an important Old Testament word that, that can't really be defined with just one English word. That's why all our translations have these different facets of what it means. It refers to the Lord's faithful, loyal love for his people. And it motivates his gracious and merciful acts on their behalf. It's one of the terms that he used to describe himself when he passes before Moses in Exodus 34 to reveal his character to his people. It is a highlight of God that he highlights for man. He says, look at this. Look at my loving kindness. Often it's not a general disposition. It's a specific disposition to those to whom the Lord has shown grace and mercy, the people that he had a relationship with. And he loves his loving kindness to be exalted in, to be exalted, to be praised. Just look at Psalm 107 as, as one example of many. He loves for his loving kindness to be praised and thanked. And this term, this, this attribute of our God is fundamentally opposed to self-exaltation. It's absolutely opposed to, to any pride that one would have in self because it's from the Lord. It's not deserved. It's, it's derived. It's something that we receive. And those who recognize in their hearts that they're the recipients of God's undeserved mercy, his unmerited favor, it's only those that can then boast in the Lord of loving kindness. By definition, this attribute of God humbles men and women. There are two other attributes after that that he highlights in verse 24. It's his justice and his righteousness. His justice identifies his equitable dealings with mankind. He will punish the wicked perfectly. He will avenge the righteous perfectly. He always acts in a perfect and just manner. There's no favoritism. There's no inequity with God. He's determined the rights of mankind. He's not corrupt in his dealings with mankind. 
And that would have stood in direct opposition to the people of Judah who had perverted justice, who had taken advantage of the less fortunate. Jeremiah 5.1 indicates that there may not have even been one, not even one individual who did justice in the streets of Jerusalem. But God says, I am just. I exercise justice in the earth. Know that. Understand that. Seek confidence in that. Boast in that. And he also says righteousness. Righteousness, that, that which is right and good about our God. It is related to his justness, which then impacts his just is. It impacts the way that he deals in those ways on the earth. It emphasizes his utter trustworthiness. God is a righteous, good, pure God is utterly trustworthy. He's not affected or stained by any iniquity. And he says these are the characteristics which should shape the one who understands and knows the Lord. They weren't boasting in these characteristics of God because they were busy walking after their own counsels, committing deeds and iniquity that was directly opposed to these things that the Lord has said about himself and revealed. But those who understand and know the Lord, those who are adequately equipped to praise God, to turn attention off self, are those who know what the Lord loves. They love what he loves. They praise what he praises. They have lives that are adorned by the character of God and by understanding God. God has said, I delight in these things. This is what I like to be praised for. This is what I like to see men and women glory in, not the resources that men use as a grounds to praise self, but deeds, actions, attitudes that reflect God's character. And these prophetic words remind us that we must wrestle with our flesh. We must appropriate our God-given affections, our energies, our attention, our focus for his glory as is fitting for those who know him. We read Paul's words to the Corinthians early on. We just referenced it earlier. Paul says to the church in Corinth, why do you boast in what you've received? And all Christians, all who know Christ, have to join that exact same, same chorus. We, we have nothing to boast in apart from the Lord Jesus, apart from God and his character. We're not facing the imminent threat in the same way Judah does. Those who know the Lord Jesus have been forgiven. But I would submit to you that a Christian is to respond in these verses by beginning to recognize that the propensity of self-centeredness, the propensity of self-focus that every one of us has residing in our hearts, in our flesh. We can't deny that our deceptive hearts seek out endless avenues to promote self. Our financial success, our children's abilities, our choices for schooling, diet, medical care, our fashion sense, our technical competencies, our talents, even our service for the church can be used in a fleshly heart to promote self. Imagine a child that claimed credit for the house, food, and clothing that his parents have provided for him. Imagine that scene. Parents, imagine that scene. It's utterly ludicrous, right? 
And yet it is that same, same heart for a believer to look at God, to know what we've received in Christ Jesus, and to praise ourselves. We're called by Jeremiah's words to continually and aggressively turn away from self-sufficiency, self-trusting, self-praising propensities that are in our heart to be reminded that we are to boast only in God. And that begins at the cross. We sang so much about it this morning. We read scripture about it. The cross is where we are ultimately humbled. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, brings every human being, all human boasting to nothing. We deserve condemnation, yet receive forgiveness. We deserve an eternity separated from God, yet receive eternal life. We have no grounds for boasting in self before God. And we cultivate humility when we consistently recognize the utter insecure and shaky foundation of ourselves and the absolute secure foundation that the Lord provides for our praise, for our boasting. The most most important thing, the absolutely most important thing about the Christian for all eternity will not be anything that we did. It will be something that was accomplished on our behalf. And I'll leave you again with the words of Paul. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the, dis- and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, and Paul uses the words from Jeremiah, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Please pray with me.